So John chapter 15, beginning in verse 12, and we'll look at verses 12 through 17. If you would stand in reverence to the reading of God's perfect word. Hear the word of Christ. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from the Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. Oh God, I pray that would be true for this church. As we think about this mission, as we think about walking with Christ, knowing Christ, being committed to Christ, fellowshipping with one another, God, we would bubble up and overflow with radical love for one another, where folks are amazed that we forgive, that we serve, that we are merciful and kind to one another. In a world full of outrage and hate, God, I pray that we would be the people who choose love. And it's in the name of Christ we pray, whose name is love, Jesus, amen. Amen. may be seated. She's not my friend. I was listening to someone give a group of guys counseling advice about their marriages. And it was sort of that, you know, trendy thing where I'm going to give you some tips for your marriage. Tip one, tip two, tip three. I'm going to tell you how to have a good, healthy marriage. And the first suggestion that he offered us was be friends. Your wife should be your best friend. You can tell in the way I'm saying that, that I received that as being cheesy, right? Because I immediately thought about my best friends, and I did not want my wife to be one of those. (laughs) My best friends are the guys that you hunt and you fish with. My friends are the guys that you yell at the TV when you're watching the game. And I actually prefer my wife not to enjoy those things. Man, it's okay if a woman does or your wife does. That's fine. It's just the way I'm wired up. I like for my wife not to really be so engaged in such activity. Not because I don't want to be around her, but I really enjoy that she enjoys the things she enjoys. And I also don't want my friends falling into the same sort of category, romantic category, I was thinking, as my wife does. I don't want to go out to dinner with my friends and and talk. I I don't want that kind of friendship. And so in my mind, I had all of these things 
confused as this guy talked about friendship. I didn't want my wife to be my buddy. And so before ever listening to anything else he had to say, I sort of just wrote that off. I've actually given couples marriage counseling in light of this. And your wife doesn't need to be your friend. Well, today I'm repenting of that. Because, amen, huh? Was that you? Because when you understand biblical friendship in the context of love, that makes perfect sense that your wife, your spouse would be your best friend. In our passage, Jesus teaches biblical friendship in light of love. And it wasn't as though I had such a high view of my wife in thinking that way. It was at that point I had such a low view of friendship and what it really is. Jesus talks about friendship here in the context of radical sacrifice. He talks about friendship here in the context of really knowing another person's soul. He talks about friendship here in the context of experiencing being on mission together and how that binds us together. And here, shockingly, Jesus calls us to the highest form of friendship in the church, with the church. Notice, first of all, we see friendship is a pursuit. Notice verse 12. Jesus says to the disciples, these men that he has walked with, that he has taught, that he is preparing them as he is about to be crucified, as he is about to be raised from the dead, ascended to the right hand of God. He's telling them, I'm going to send my spirit and I'm going to create the church in the world. And as the church comes into fruition, there is something you must always do. There's something you must always be. And it's love. Notice verse 12, he says, this is my commandment that you love one another. And and right off the bat, we see that love is a commandment. It's required. It's something you choose to do. Love actually sums up all of what Jesus is requiring of us. To love him, to love one another, to love our neighbors, to love our enemies. He requires love from us. And then he defines what that love looks like. Notice that you love one another as I have loved you. We've talked about this before here. Love is a commitment to another person's good no matter what it costs you. To be radically committed to their well-being to what is good for them, no matter what it costs you. And here Jesus commands it, and then he defines it as I have loved you. Now think about the disciples, these men who he has spent the last three years of his life with. He called them to himself. He has taught them about the kingdom. He has endured their sin. He has had to rebuke them. He's going to go to the cross and die, even as most of them, all but one, betray him and leave him. And then he will have to forgive them before he sends them out. And he says, as I have taught you to love in this way, the way I have loved you, invested in you, endured your sin, encouraged you, will send you out, as I have forgiven you, that's how you're supposed to love one another. You've seen it in flesh and blood. And and this is one reason 
that John would, would call this call to love a new commandment. He talks about it in 1 John. He says, I bring to you a new commandment. And we're thinking, to love's not a new commandment. I mean, go all the way back to Deuteronomy. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. The Jews said that over and over. It was a part of their daily activity as they memorized that. And they said that love is not a new commandment. So why would John call it a new commandment? Because Jesus would say to us, you've seen love in this new way. Flesh and blood love that sacrifices for the good of another in a way no one has ever seen it in my person. And then he explains what he means by that here. He says, greater love has no one than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. You have seen that and you will see that in flesh and blood. This vivid love will be put on display as the flesh of Jesus is stapled to a cross for them. And then he turns around in verse 14 and says, you are my friends if you do what I command you, if you love one another in this way. This radical, life-giving, self-sacrificial love is what is required of you if you're going to have anything to do with me. You would lay down your life for your friends. You are my friends if you do this. It's required and it's proof that you know Jesus. That you would love one another in this way. That you associate with Jesus. And notice here, he talks about this self-sacrificial love in the context of friendship. That you would lay down your life for your friends. We know though that Romans chapter 5 teaches that we haven't always been friends with Jesus. That we come into this world with a sin nature and we reject God as our authority and we push him away and we wage war against him. Romans 5 calls us enemies of God. Enemies of God for whom Jesus died for. And so that even heightens this love because Jesus dies for his enemies to make us his friends. And that's the sort of love you are to display. So it's this unconditional, no excuses, love for one another. That you would even die for those that you would consider your enemies to make them your friends. And he puts this self-sacrificial love in the context of our friendship. He says, I've died for my friends. And if you are my friends, you must be willing to do the same. And one of the things we learn from this is friendship is not a noun. It's not a noun. It's not just a category of people that enjoy the same kind of things you enjoy. It, it is a pursuit. It is a pursuit in love to sacrifice for others. That's what it means to be a friend. Friendship is a verb. It is aggressive. Deep friendships do not just magically happen. You may enjoy some of the things that other people enjoy, and there's common bonds. And you have acquaintances that have the same preferences. But even within those acquaintances, deep friendship there doesn't happen without love. And it doesn't happen without an intentional, radical sacrifice on your part to be their friend. Friendship is a pursuit of love in the same way Jesus pursued us. So some of you are asking here today, who are my friends? And, and you immediately think, who is being friendly to me? 
Who has befriended me? Who has served me? And that's the wrong way to think about friendship. It, 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 who is my friend is the same question Jesus answered when he asked, who is your neighbor? You have to love your neighbor as yourself. Who is it? What's well, anybody who is in need? And it's the same sort of concept here. Who is your friend? Well, who are you pursuing in love? Who are you radically sacrificing for? How are you establishing friendships? Don't think about what other people are doing for you in this moment. Think about who you are inconveniencing yourself for. Think about who you are opening your schedule up to. This week I was on a group text with a guy who is going through a really, really hard time. And, and I was thinking about how do I express to him I'm his friend and if you need anything. And another guy on the group text just said, if you need me at any time, 2 a.m., call me. That's friendship. Your schedule is wide open. Your space, the space in your life is wide open. The front door is open. Anytime you need anything, I am committed to you and I'm willing to be inconvenienced for you. And one of the things Jesus teaches about friendship here that I think is so important for us to understand it's the scandal of friendship is your greatest enemies can become your best friends. Your greatest, think about your greatest enemy right now. Think about how deep that friendship would be if there was reconciliation. If you pursued them in love and you established a bond in the gospel. Think about those who have different political views than you do. Think about that neighbor that speeds through your neighborhood every day while your kids are out playing and you throw things at their car. Think about the people that you just seethe the most at. Think about people in your life right now who hate Jesus. Would you ever think in your mind they could ever be your friend? If you knew who you were from Jesus' point of view, you would never think you could be his friend because you were his enemy who rejected him. And the deepest friendship, even with Jesus, is established in one who was once his enemy. And, and, and he continues here. He says, no longer do I call you servants. Here in verse 15, we begin to say that friendship, it, it, it's not just a pursuit of love, but it's also a pursuit of knowledge. He, he says, no longer do I call you servants or slaves, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But he says to the disciples here, I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I make known to you. He, you see, a slave only receives instruction. Tell me what to do, and then I will do it. No questions asked. The slave isn't in on the inner workings of the house, and the slave gets no part in the kingdom. But Jesus says here, I'm no longer calling you slaves, I am calling you friends, because something has changed in my relationship with you. I'm no longer just your master. I'm your friend because I've allowed you in on what the Father is doing. You're not just a slave in this household, not just a slave in this kingdom. You are a friend of mine because I have unveiled to you what God is doing in the world. And in the, Hebrew, the Hebrew word for friend is so powerful because it involves an unveiling of your secrets to another person. And that's what Jesus is saying here. I am unveiling to you secrets of the kingdom. 
You're no longer just servants in the kingdom. You are my friends in the kingdom. And it's also vitally important to remember that the, that the concept of brotherhood is also very closely connected to the idea of friendship. Your brother knows you like nobody else. So your brother is usually your closest friend. Your sister knows you like nobody else. So your sister is usually your closest friend. And this is the relationship that Jesus is bringing us into with the disciples here. I am unveiling to you the soul of God. I am unveiling to you everything that you would need to know about God. Your friend is the one who knows your soul. And Jesus says to these 12 men, I am unveiling my soul to you. The plan of God that I would be king, that I would rule over sin and death. And it happens through a cross where I go and I will lose. I will lose. I will be a crucified Messiah. This oxymoron that God's ruling king dies. He loses. But I will be raised from the dead. And it all sounds like a fairy tale. But he says to these 12 men, I am unveiling this kingdom to you. The rest of the world won't see it. They'll reject it. They'll think it's foolishness, but I am unveiling it to you. And so we can say Jesus is our brother, our closest friend who has unveiled the soul of God to us. And in the kingdom, if you believe in Jesus and you submit to this kingdom, you are no longer called slaves in the kingdom. You are called sons. And if you are sons, you are Jesus's brothers, which means you're Jesus's friends. You see, the depth of your friendships will come in the depths that you are known. You're known and that you know another person. And that's why Jesus is the only one who you could say at the end of the day is your closest friend or should be your closest friend. Because Jesus knows everything about you. And Jesus is unveiling everything about him to you. He's not holding anything back. Think about who knows you the deepest. It's Jesus. He knew your sin before you ever tasted it. He knew, he knew what was coming for you and the things that you would choose and the things that you would do and the things that you enjoy. He knew it all before you even knew it. And, and he knows your sin better than you do. He knows the full extent of your sin because he endured the wrath of God for your sin. He knows how heinous it is. You don't even know how heinous it is. Jesus was obliterated under the blowtorch of God's wrath for your sin. He has seen it up close and he has seen it personal in a way that you haven't seen it yet. Even in a way that you deny it. And so we pursue friendship with Jesus by telling him in some sense what he already knows. Our sin. Why is it so often we're scared to confess our sin to Jesus? Like he's going to be disappointed in us. He already knows it. He died for it. That's why he says, come, come, there's forgiveness here. I want you to know forgiveness. And we pursue friendship with Jesus in that way, but we also pursue friendship with one another in that way. We tell one another what we already know. And so friends in Jesus will also be our deepest friends because in Christ, we already know the whole story about one another. That, that my sin is worse than I want to believe. 
And Jesus loves me in ways I can't believe. And so we come to Jesus and we, and we say, you know my heart, I confess my sin. But we also come to one another and confess our sin. And that's where friendships are formed. We say to our brothers and sisters, our friends, what you got, man? Hey, I'm worse than you know. And yet the gospel is true. What, 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 where, who knows your soul? Who knows your soul? Jesus knows your soul. But what brothers and sisters here in Christ today know your soul? Who are your real friends? Are there contexts in your life where it's all on the table? Because that's where friendship happens. That's where it happens with Jesus and that's where it happens with one another. And I'm not just talking about a girl's night out where we get together and we tell all of our secrets and all of the gossip and it's all out and it's all fun. No. And I'm not talking about those guys' meetings where we just commiserate about how miserable life is and how we're so horrible at this and we just commiserate. That's not what I'm talking about. That's not where friendships are formed. They're formed around the gospel. Where we say, yeah, I know it. I know, you, I know, what, you're, I know what sin's like, but I also know the love of God. Let's talk about it. But, but are there people you go to where you say, I need you to know this about me for the sake of my soul? I need you to know this about my soul. I need you to know how I respond when this happens in my home because it's destroying my marriage. That's friendship. Are there folks like that in your life who you're attempting to be known by the same way you're known by Jesus? Are there folks that you go to and you say, I need to tell you where my mind veers? I need to tell you the discontentment I have with my life. I wish I was at a different place with different people. Are there people you can say that to? That those are your friends. Are, are there people you can say, I am tempted to lie for the grade. I am tempted to lie for the money. I need you to know this about me. I am tempted to find security and comfort in other people in ways that are wicked and sinful. And I need you to know this about my soul. I need you to be my friend. Or are your friends merely your servants? They're just sort of props. They're, they're upholding an image for you. And, and if your, your friends are props that uphold an image for you, you will always hide from them. You, you will always hold things. If it's just about company, hey, I need, I need some companionship at this time. Let's go have coffee. And you just want to get out and you just want to be away. And, and, but you still want to hold to an image. You're always going to hide things from them. And that's not true friendship unless they really know you. Are, are your friends props? Are they tools where, where, you, where you can act like you have it all together? Or are there contexts where you can say, no, it's all on the table? Are there contexts where you are loving other people so much that they know when you ask the questions, it's out of love, not condemnation? Because some of you are here today saying, I'm not throwing all that garbage on the table for other people? Well, if we love one another, it becomes natural to do that. And people know the questions aren't condemnation. Are there folks walking up to you in your life and saying, I need you to hold the light because <laughs> I, I got to figure out how to get away from this sin. 
I got I to gotta figure out the path around this sin. And I need you to hold the light for me. Are there folks who are stepping into your life and, and, and saying, I need you. I need you to untangle this trap. I, my hands are tied with sin. And so I need you to help me untangle it all in light of the gospel. Do you have friendships like that? I'll be honest with you. For years, I never had friends like that. It was my fault. And, and one of the reasons is I always thought if I confess these weaknesses and sin, I will lose respect from these people as a leader, as a husband, as a father. I, I'll lose respect. And so I can't just throw it all on the table. And yet I've realized that to be a good leader... To be a good father, to be a good husband, I have to have context where I say those things. And in the context of love, when there are folks who really love one another, it is natural just to say that. And in the context of this church, I know so many people here love me, so I end up saying too much about myself. I'm OCD, I'm impatient, I'm a curmudgeon. You need to know those things about me. I was at a basketball game this week, and, and one of the parents said to me, oh, you're the pastor that got kicked out of the first game this year. <laughs> and if you were here, you know it was a misunderstanding. It wasn't my fault. I've already told this story. Go back and listen to the tape. And I told the person that, that, that she goes, does your church know about that? I said, oh, yeah, they all know. And she said, why would you tell your church that? I said, oh, they know far worse than that about me. I said, they're my closest friends. And that's where it happens in the context of love. But it begins by you saying, who am I loving? Who am I being friends to? So that they trust me with that. So that there is no condemnation. He continues here. He says, I did not choose you, or sorry, that's totally wrong. That's not right. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Jesus says, how, do you, how are you going to accomplish this mi mission of love? And how are, how are we going to develop this friendship? How are you going to love one another? He says, well, I want to remind you, you didn't choose me. You didn't decide all of a sudden I'm, you're going to be a part of this. Remember what you guys were doing? Some of you were out fishing with your family, the family business. And others of you were collecting taxes. You were in the back room. You, you, you were hidden away in your sin. People hated you. Others of you, you really didn't have anything going on. You were farming. You were to yourself. And then one day I walked in and said, follow me. And you did. I came to you. You didn't come to me. And he says, I chose you and appointed you and, and that you would go. So I am sending you. Here Jesus says, I chose you for this mission. And in context, we would say he's talking about the mission to make disciples of all nations. To go and make converts. 
And he would say, as you go, this is the fruit that you will bear. People will believe. People will follow me. And, and this is what it looks like. But John always talks about this mission in light of love. And he says, so you go and you make disciples out of love. You go and you love others. And they will believe the gospel. And they will become part of the kingdom. That's the way in which this is going to happen. And he says, your fruit shall abide. The, the fruit of your ministry, the fruit of your love. You're going to see people all over the world believe the gospel. And this will abide forever. And so whatever you ask in my name to the Father, he will give it to you. If it's in the context of this mission, if it's in the context of loving others, no matter what you do, if you love, you will be successful. The Father will make it happen. There will be people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation who will believe the gospel. And the way that you make that happen is you go out in love. And John puts this whole discussion in the context of vine and branches and fruit. And he would say, I am the vine. Abide in me and you'll bear fruit. And here he explains what that fruit is. It's love. And your love will last forever. And so the vine goes and the vine dies. And if you are connected to the vine, Jesus, through his death, guess what you're going to do? You're going to go and you're going to die. And you're going to love others. You're going to sacrifice for others. And as you do that, people are going to see the kingdom in ways they would never imagine. And they're going to see this radical love that you have for them, that you have for one another, that you have for Jesus. And they're going to believe. And guess what they're going to be able to do? They're going to start loving. And then this, this fruit of love just continues to multiply throughout the world. And he's talking here about the church. It's the same thing Jesus would tell the disciples in Matthew. When he says, I'm headed to Jerusalem, guys. And when we go into Jerusalem, it's not going to be, it, it's going to be horrific. It's not just going to be this great party that lasts forever. There's going to be a lot of hoopla. I'm going to be called a king. But guess what they're going to do to me? They're going to crucify me. They're going to kill me. And if you want to be a part of this, what does he tell us to do? You take up your cross and follow me. I'm going to go love by dying for your sin. And if you want in on this mission of love, be ready to die for me. And this ragtag group of farmers, cowboys, tax collectors... They go out and all but one of them die for the sake of the gospel. And guess what? Their fruit abides. Look around this room. The church is still here today. Their love for Jesus, Jesus' love for them, has grown into this massive vineyard that encompasses the world in love. And it's called the church. And you get to be a part of it. And Jesus says, I'm letting you in on this. I've called you to be a part of this. You can't lose but if you're going to be a part of it, verse 17, there's one thing that you cannot forget. These things I command you that you would love one another. If you're going to be a part of this mission, it's got to be rooted in love. The genuineness of our mission is that we would love. We would love one another. He will say to his disciples in another place, they will know you by your love. How are they going to know this is real, Jesus? How are they going to know this mission is your mission? When you love one another, they're going to see it's real. 
The genuineness of our mission is displayed in our love. You cannot tell the world God loves them if you don't love one another as friends in the context of the church. The church should be a place where there is a fullness of forgiveness and grace and mercy and encouragement, giving one another the benefit of the doubt, otherworldly love that overwhelms superficial temporary friendships in the world. And it's what gives our, the credibility of our mission. You know what discredits a message that says, God loved me so much, he would send his son to die for me. He would endure all of God's wrath for my sin so that there is no longer no condemnation for me. The payment is in full. And we say we believe that. You know what tells the world we don't believe it is when we are petty. And when we are a place full of drama, when you look around this room and there are people here that you're holding grudges against, when you look around this room and there are people you just can't forgive, when there you look around the room in the context of the church and there's folks you haven't talked to in years, do you really believe God loves you? Are you really embracing the love of God? That's what would discredit our message. Who wants the kind of friends that they have in the break room all week? The backbiting. Who wants the kind of friends that they have on the group chats, the Facebook comments? Who wants that? And so the church should be a stark contrast to all of that. And our mission to love others flows from our love for one another. All week long, we are called to love our enemies. Jesus calls us to love our enemies, to sacrifice for our enemies in hopes and prayers that one day they would be our friends. How are you going to do that if we don't love one another here? You're going to come to crisis moments this week where you're going to have to love a foolish boss. You're going to come to crisis moments where you're going to have to love a sinful spouse. You're going to come to crisis moments this week Where that lazy roommate who hasn't washed the dishes, who hasn't picked their clothes up, doesn't even know if they've gotten out of bed in a week and gone to school in two weeks. We don't even know if they're still alive. (laughs) And you're going to be fuming in anger. And what does the gospel call you to do? Love them. Pick the clothes up. Wash the dishes yourself. Tell them Jesus loves you and I'm trying. But if we don't love each other here, we have no context to say that. If this is not a place full of self-sacrificial love, how in the world are we going to do that in the world? This is why gospel friendship in light of the essentials, it ties it all together. Because it becomes our witness. It It is what permeates what we call the essentials here. Because if you're essential one, going to follow Jesus, you're going to know his love and you're going to love others. If you're engaged in covenant membership, you're going to experience the love of covenant friends who ain't leaving. If you're going to engage in worship, you're going to be reminded week after week why we are really friends. We hold the gospel and so we hold one another in worship. 
You're going to be engaged in fellowship where you experience the love of the gospel as you fight to be known, as you fight to love, as you fight to be loved in your small groups, and as you serve with all kinds of gifts on one mission, your friendship will deepen like soldiers on the battlefield who are bound by the war, who are bound in battle, who are in the foxhole together as we serve for the sake of the gospel. And friendships form there. So friendship isn't another step on the essentials. It's not like we're getting to the last essential and going, okay, the final step is that you be a friend. No, you're a friend the whole time. And you enjoy gospel friendships as you engage in these things. And the more you're committed to all these things, the more you will enjoy more friendship. And it's going to be different in all kinds of levels, on all kinds of context here. But I will say this, the degree to which you are engaged is the degree which you will experience friendship. And you can't love everybody. You're, you're not Jesus. You're not going to love everybody the same. You're not going to have the same level of friendship with everybody. As a matter of fact, Jesus, in the flesh, only chose 12 friends. And one of them stabbed him in the back, and he was still his friend and washed his feet. And so you're not going to have the same level of friendship with everybody here. But within the church, I, I want to call you to this very practical Aim for quality instead of quantity. The men in your BFG, be their friend, love them. The women in your BFG, sacrifice for them. The folks you're on a ministry team together, pick them, give yourself over to being their friend. Maybe you're not involved in a BFG, maybe, maybe you're not involved in ministry. The row that you're on today, just pick those people and be their friends. Y'all set together every week anyway. Won't even let anybody else sit in your seat. So you might as well be good friends. So just love them. Be their friend. And it's one of the reasons, well, I do have to say, Danae is my best friend. No one, oh. <laughs> you really understand the culture here when I try to say something sweet to my wife and everybody starts laughing. including her. <laughs> but there's no one who has sacrificed more for me. And there's nobody who knows the good and the bad. There's nobody who's been on the front lines of life and ministry more than her. And, and I would be absolutely miserable trying to love anybody else without her love. Her love to me sustains my love for others in the context of life and ministry. And, and, and so... You're not going to have that level of friendship with everybody. But it should be your aim because you start with how am I going to love, how am I going to know, and how am I going to be on mission with these folks. And maybe you're here today and you say, well, Jesus can't be my friend. The same way I was saying that about my wife. Jesus can't be my friend. He's Lord and He's Savior and He's King. He can't be my buddy. You're right, He can't be your buddy. But He is your friend. And maybe your view of friendship is just too low. Because that's the scandal of the gospel, is that the Lord and Savior and King would make you his friend by laying down his life. And it's also the secret of friendship in the context of the church.